Hi, this is Kirk Reed. Bear with me as we need a little compliance disclosure. In our practice, we give financial advice to our clients. We know their financial situation in detail before doing so. That's generally not the case with callers we speak with on the show. We can't give truly meaningful financial advice because we don't know the detailed financial situation of the caller. After all, we just met. Any suggestions we make to callers are generic in nature and meant to steer a caller in the right direction. Callers should check with their own financial professionals before implementing any suggestions that we may make. At times on this show, we talk about investments and investment performance. Investment returns are not guaranteed, and past performance does not guarantee future results. And good morning. My name is Mike McNamara, and this is McNamara on Money. And by the way, Happy New Year and all that good stuff to you as well, folks. 2023, most of us are pretty happy to be rid of 2022, and let's hope 2023 is a good year for all of us. Anyway, we're stepping out of our normal routine today with a very different kind of show topic. The The official title of the show is, It's a Great Time to Be Alive. That's in quotes, I want you to know. Made that up all by myself. I will attempt to prove that we are living at the best possible time to be alive in all of human history and that we enjoy a quality of life that was unimaginable even 74 years ago, which happens to be my age, as a matter of fact. And I can testify to that personally. All right. Yes, this is a country and a world where we have problems, lots of them. But we've always had problems. And if you took an honest look way back in history for as long as you want to go, we have a pretty darn good track record of solving those problems because the proof is we're all still here and probably better off than when we were born, plus or minus. Anyway, all here's the problem, folks. Human beings, by nature, have a negative bias in that the pain that comes with bad news or bad things is much more severe than the joy or happiness that comes with good news or good things. I'm afraid that's just the way that we're wired, which, by the way, makes us pretty poor investors without a lot of practice and education. Anyway, all forms of media, yep, radio as well, not WATD, of course, but all forms of media sell much more bad news than good news, and that just feeds and grows this negative bias that we have as people. Think about it. We are absolutely assaulted with bad news all the time. No, no wonder we don't feel too good about ourselves or the future, or at least hopefully not too bad. We are focused on the bad news, and it forces us to lose our perspective. We take for granted good things in our world and are consumed and worry about the bad things. Oh, I just bought a new car. That's I expected that, but I'm worried about global warming or whatever. And I'm not demeaning any of the problems we have, folks, but I want to say this again. We take for granted the good things that we have or our lifestyle, like we deserve them. We don't even think about them, but we're consumed with worry about the bad things. And it's just something I want to try to oh, make feel, people feel a little bit better about the future with this show. The rate of human progress and improvement in the quality of our lives over time has been astounding. And we have much to be hopeful for in the future. Or said differently, based on the evidence of the past, we have no reason to be pessimistic about our future. I will spend this entire show supporting my statements here that it's a great time to be alive 
and that we should be excited about the future. The glass is more than half full, folks. All right, one question for you, which I think I'm going to ask every time we come back from a break, and it puts everything in perspective as far as I'm concerned. And as I ramble on here for the next couple of hours, I want you to be thinking about this question. I'm going to remind you about it a few times. So here we go. Would you rather, if you had a choice, would you rather have been born at the date and time and place of your birth or 500 years ago or at any other time and place in human history? If your answer is you're pretty happy with the date and time and place that you were born, then congratulations. You'll get some kicks out of this show, and I think you'll feel even a little bit better than you might feel after answering that question. If your answer is no to that, I'm sorry about the life you've had, folks, or whatever's going on there, but don't don't tune us out here. I'm going to attempt it with great effort to try to convince you that there just might be some reason to hope about the future, and there just might be some reasons to be thankful about the life that you have right now. Is this a money show? Yes, McNamara on money. And you know what? Okay, the overwhelming trait that you need to be a good investor is to be an optimist. So I'm going to work on that in case you have a problem with it for the next couple hours, folks. Okay? All right, so I'm going to read a bunch of articles. I'm going to cite a bunch of examples. I'm going to ramble back and forth across many areas, but all of them give us a perspective that just maybe we're getting better and just maybe there's been some pretty amazing things that have happened to us, our lives, and our quality of lives just in our lifetime, never mind recorded history. So pardon me for being a glasses at least half full kind of guy, but here we go. All right, so the first is an article from Forbes magazine. It's entitled, Why the World is Getting Better and Why Hardly Anyone Knows It. The author is Steve Denning, and the date, in case you're curious, was November 30th, 2017. Once again, the title, Why the World is Getting Better and Why Hardly Anyone Knows It. Read the news, and you can see that the world is going to hell in a handbasket, and fast. Terrorism, nuclear weapons, economic stagnation, social unrest, autocratic leaders, structural unemployment, de-skilling, I'm not sure what that means, growing hopelessness, the opioid epidemic, increasing inequality, xenophobia, economic migrations, recessions, financial bubbles, crashes, recessions, depressions, the list goes on. Oh, let's not talk about a small war going on in another part of the world right now to add to that mess. So when a recent survey asked, all things considered, do you think the world is getting better or worse? The results were predictably bleak. In Sweden, only 10% thought things were getting better. And in the United States, it was only 6%. 6% of folks think the world's getting better. I'm talking to the other 94% right here. This is your special day. <clears throat> Excuse me. Hardly anyone thinks the world is getting better. And yet the facts show otherwise. In a powerful study entitled The Short History of Global Living Conditions and Why It Matters That We Know It 
by Max Roser, an economist at the University of Oxford and the founder of Our World in Data, we learn that on virtually all of the key dimensions of human material well-being, let me say that again because this is a biggie, folks, okay, on all of the key dimensions of human material well-being, and here they are, poverty, literacy, health, freedom, and education. Let me say that again, folks. Poverty, literacy, health, freedom, and education. The world is an extraordinarily better place than it was just a couple of centuries ago. Let's take a look. Number one, poverty. Excuse me. Even the Bible tells us that the poor you will always have with you. And it's customary to see poverty as so intractable, even insoluble, that organizations like the World Bank might as well try boiling the ocean. Statistics show otherwise. Massive gains have been made in reducing extreme poverty, particularly in the last 50 years. Some countries are now rich that were poor just a few decades ago. 200 years ago, only a privileged few were not living in extreme poverty. For all of the ills of industrialization, Increased productivity made it possible to lift steadily more people out of extreme poverty. At first, the progress was steady. In 1950, 75% of the world were still living in extreme poverty. But today, those living in extreme poverty are now less than 10%. Hello, folks. That's a, a pretty amazing statistic. I'm editorializing here, obviously. By the way, those percentages have shrunk while the world population has exploded during that time. We don't have the same number of people to do that. So 75% of a smaller population and 10% of a larger population. Try to put that in perspective, please. Moving on. This is an extraordinary achievement, particularly because the world population has increased sevenfold over the last two centuries. Vital goods and services become less scarce. More food, better clothing, better housing, and here's a biggie, indoor plumbing. Amid the flurry of bad news in the media, it's easy to miss how far and how fast we have come. As the media is obsessed with reporting events where things have gone wrong, it is easy to overlook this extraordinary fact. Every single day since 1990, since on average there were 130,000 people fewer in extreme poverty every day. 130,000 people less in poverty every day since 1990. You can't complain about that, folks. We sit in this very wealthy, very comfortable country, and honestly, as Americans, I'm not sure how much of a clue we have with what's going on in the rest of the world and how lucky we are, given the circumstances. Okay, number two, literacy. The education story is equally encouraging. Data shows that the share of the world population that is literate over the last two centuries has gone from a tiny elite to a world where eight of 10 people can read and write. Health. 
progress in health is equally astonishing. A key reason for our surprise, question mark, we don't know how bad things used to be. In, that's right. We take for granted, folks, the things that we have, and that's just something we need to be thinking about a little bit more often. Okay, we don't know how bad things used to be. In 1800, more than 40% of the world's newborn died before the age of five. Now, only a tiny fraction die before the age of five. How come? Modern medicine helped, particularly the discovery of germs, but even more important were improvements in housing, sanitation, and diet. Number four, political freedom, I'm sorry, freedom, political freedom has also made progress. Given the emergence of populist leaders and dictators around the world, it's easy to understand underestimate what's happened in establishing political freedom and civil liberties, which are both a means for development and an end of development. Freedom is notoriously hard to measure, and our World in Data group uses an index of democracy as the least problematic of the measures that present a long-term perspective. I guess that wasn't exactly a ringing endorsement of democracy, but lead, let me read that again. Okay, our World in Data group uses an index of democracy as the least problematic of measures that present a long-term perspective. This index suggests that in the 19th century, almost everyone lived in an autocratically ruled country. Today, more than half the global population lives in a democracy. The huge majority of those living in an autocracy, four out of five, live in one autocratic country. That would be China. <clears throat> population. The world population was around one billion in the year 1800 and increased seven times since then. In one sense, this is a great achievement. Better health means that humans have stopped dying at the rate of our ancestors. In effect, humanity started to win the fight against death. Global life expectancy, <clears throat> excuse me, doubled just over the last hundred years. In another sense, though, population growth increased demand for resources and aggravated humanity's impact on the environment. But population growth isn't unlimited. Once women realize that the chances of their children dying has declined substantially, they adapt and choose to have fewer children. Population growth then comes to an end. Excuse me, a little scratchy here. Number six, education. All of these gains were enabled by improvements in knowledge and education, and education continues to improve globally. In this area, our world in data forecasts a future where education will continue on its improvement path with today's lower global fertility. The researchers expect that the number of children will decline from now. There will never be more children on the planet than today. It is expected that world population will peak in 2070 and decline thereafter. With the great importance of education for improving health, increasing political freedom, and ending poverty, this projection is very encouraging. Okay, summary part of this article coming up here, folks. And then the short story, here we go, is why don't we know? 
the world isn't getting better. It's ironic that in a world when knowledge and education are improving dramatically, there is widespread abysmal ignorance about the improving state of the world. More than nine of 10 people do not think the world is getting better. Our world in data suggests that the media are partly to blame. The media does not tell us how the world is changing. It tells us where the world is going wrong. It tends to focus on single events, particularly single events that have gone bad. By contrast, positive developments happen slowly with no particular event to promote in a headline. More people are healthy today than yesterday just doesn't cut it as a headline. The result is that most people are ignorant about how the state of the world has changed. In both the UK and the US, most people think that the share of people living in extreme poverty has increased. Two thirds in the US even think that the share in extreme poverty has almost doubled. We, uh, we are in benign neglect of the rest of the world, if you ask me, based on the quality of life that we have here. It's a little sad. <clears throat> the challenges ahead. Obviously, big problems remain. Having one out of 10 people living in extreme poverty today is unacceptable. Humanity's impact on the environment is at a level that is not sustainable, and we urgently need to reduce our impact. Continuing threats to our political freedom and liberty must be dealt with. Future gains are by no means assured. It is hard to see how we're going to solve many of the remaining problems. The picture painted by these statistics is also technically and globally in perspective. It is no solace to an individual family that is suffering to learn that the global picture of human welfare has improved over several centuries. If we talk to the people, to the people moved from their land by force or driven into tall apartment buildings, it is no comfort to learn about rising income counted in dollars if prices are rising faster. Human value and values are not adequately reflected in $0 income spreadsheets. Yet there are grounds for cautious optimism. First, the fact that future progress is hard to predict doesn't make it unlikely. Thus, it's hard to imagine anyone in the year 1800 forecasting the progress that was about to be made on all fronts over the next two centuries. Today, pessimists have the megaphone and predict almost certain doom for humanity. Yet, could all that be part of humanity's stumbling efforts towards bettering itself? Second, although easy gains have been made and harder challenges lie ahead, we now know much more about solutions. For instance, we know that the key to population limits is getting people out of poverty. Above $10,000 per capita, the population growth drops precipitously. Paradoxically, the key to saving the environment is growing faster. Third, we are discovering that global poverty reduction has been a success, not a failure. When people believe that they are failing, they risk losing faith in each other. Greater awareness of our history can build confidence to tackle the remaining problems. Fourth, we have learned much about how to collaborate. International institutions and global compacts have been set up. 
track records have been established, solving problems, bigger problems, is always a collaborative undertaking. And the group of people that is able to work together today is as much, much stronger group than there ever was on the planet. We have just seen the change over time. The world today is healthier, richer, and better educated. Fifth, we now know much more about how to adapt. The idea that we should do things today as we did them yesterday has given way to a realization that if further progress is to be made, we must learn to adapt even faster. Management practices that aim at preserving the status quo are bottlenecks in the effort to achieve further progress. Innovation must be continuous. If we are to master the challenges that lie before us in a world of accelerating change, the increasing complexity Organizations must learn to become more fragile. Okay, that was pretty good. We got about a minute or so here. Okay, please, oh, please, let's just think about this for a moment. Okay, would you rather have been born at the place and date and time of your birth or any other time in any other place in history? I'm thinking your answer to that is probably when you were born, and there's about 8 million reasons for that. Okay, we are negative bias by, unfortunately, just that's the human condition, and being assaulted by media and all kinds of bad news. We just get overwhelmed and lose our perspective about things. Okay, folks, when we come back here, I'm going to read from an article called Seven Incredible Medical Breakthroughs That Changed the World. And on that note, we'll be right back. This is Mike McNamara. If you're looking for a financial advisor, start by asking him or her three questions. Number one, are you a certified financial planner practitioner? Number two, are you legally held to a fiduciary standard of care for your clients? And number three, do you only give financial advice and not sell investment products? These are all simple yes-no questions. If he or she doesn't answer yes quickly and starts talking, that's a no, and it's time to move on to another advisor. We're back. My name is Mike McNamara. This is McNamara on Money, and we're doing something a little bit different today. The name of the show is It's a Great Time to Be Alive. And the bottom line is that I'm going to attempt to prove that we are living in the best possible time to be alive in the history of the world and that we're going to be okay. And, yep, I know we have a whole bunch of problems going on in the world, but we've always had problems. And if you take an honest look back in history... We've solved a whole heck of a lot of problems we've had in the past, and you don't have much evidence to suggest that we can't continue to do that. Maybe more slowly than you'd like, but nevertheless, I think we're working on them. Human beings by nature are negative in bias. The pain that comes with bad news or bad things is much more severe than the joy or happiness that comes with good news or good things. The media assaults us with bad news. I think we lose our perspective. We take for granted the good things in our world and are consumed with the worry about the bad things. The rate of human progress and improvement in the quality of our lives over time has been astounding, and we have much to be hopeful for in the future. Or said differently, Based on the evidence of the past, we have no reason to be pessimistic about the future. I'll spend the rest of this show supporting my statement that it is a great time to be alive and that we should be excited about our future. The glass is more than half full. <clears throat> One quick question for you if you're just tuning in, and your answer to it will, I guess, make a statement about the topic here. Would you rather have been born on the time, date, and place that you, or at the time, date, and place that you were born, or 
500 years ago, or at any other time and place in human history? Most of us folks would answer, I think, on the date and time and place that you were actually born. Thank you, toilets and medical advances, I guess I could start with, but there's a really long list about that. And if your answer was some other time, then you need to pay attention for the next hour and a half or so. Okay, I am reading from a report from the Worldwide Cancer Research Center, dated 42921, and it's basically entitled Seven Incredible Medical Breakthroughs That Changed the World. Ah, evidence that things are getting better. Breakthrough number one, vaccinations. <clears throat> the, coronavirus, yeah, the coronavirus pandemic has ensured that vaccines have been at the forefront of all of our minds this year. But this is by no means the first public health crisis that has relied on vaccinations to turn the tide. The first ever successful vaccine was the smallpox vaccine introduced in 1796 by Edward Jenner. Excuse me. He observed that milkmaids who had previously caught cowpox seemed to avoid catching smallpox giving him the idea to stimulate the immune system with a less dangerous or dead part of a germ. Smallpox was one of the deadliest diseases ever known to mankind with an estimated 300 to 500 million people. Let me say that again. 300 to 500 million people losing their lives to the disease throughout the 19th century. Less than two centuries after the vaccine was introduced, in 1978, a woman named Janet Parker died from smallpox in Birmingham after the virus escaped from a lab. She remains the last person to have died from the disease on Earth to date. You want to think about that for a minute, folks? Today, smallpox remains the only human disease to have been completely eradicated by vaccination, saving countless lives over the years. You kind of lose perspective, even with this coronavirus thing that's awful. Anesthesia. Oh, yes. Thank you, God. Just knock me out. I don't know what you want to do with me here. Let's see. There's no doubt that surgeries save lives. It's unlikely to be a surprise to you that the more complex the surgery, the longer the operation takes. But did you know that before anesthesia, surgeons were hugely limited to how long they could operate for? Operations considered relatively commonplace today would have been regarded as impossible, either because they would take too long or because the limited pain relief available at the time, like opium, was insufficient. Knock me out, I don't care what you do. The first ever surgical procedure using anesthesia was performed in the USA on the 16th of October 1846 in Boston to remove a tumor from a patient's neck. Today, surgery is still the main treatment option for most cancer patients and can be curative if the cancer is caught early enough. Thank you, anesthesia. Epidemiology. 
that John, this John Snow definitely didn't know nothing. A London physician, he is widely regarded as the father of epidemiology, the study of patents and causes of disease in a population. Snow believed that cholera, an incredibly common and very deadly disease of the time, wasn't caused by bad air, as everyone at the time believed and set out to prove otherwise. By essentially using a version of track and trace, he was able to find evidence that all of the cases of one particularly bad outbreak of cholera could be linked back to a specific water pump near Bond Street, London, proving that the source of cholera to be the contaminated local water supply. <clears throat> Excuse me. Epidemiology is an important area of research for all diseases, including cancer. By understanding the rate of cancer cases in a population and the common genetic, environmental, and lifestyle factors that connect these people, we can better understand the underlying causes of cancer and develop new ways to prevent disease. Moving along here, germ theory. Did you know that it took until the 19th century for people to accept that disease is caused by germs? You might have already heard one of the main players in the field, French chemist Louis Pasteur, who proved that fermentation of wine and souring of milk are caused by living microorganisms. But have you come across the name Joseph Lister before? A professor of surgery at Glasgow University, Lister was the first to apply germ theory to surgery. In 1865, Lister introduced the antiseptic principle to surgery, revolutionizing the field by providing a way to prevent infection in wounds during and after surgery. This relatively small change had a dramatic impact, leading to steep fall, leading to a steep fall in infections and deaths after operations were carried out. Today, surgery is a widespread treatment for many health conditions, and without antiseptic principles, even the smallest procedure could be deadly if infection enters the body. Thank you, penicillin, and all that good stuff. Insulin. <clears throat> Today's Diabetes is a serious but generally well-controlled disease thanks to our understanding of how lifestyle choices can help control symptoms. Advances in treatments such as insulin injections also play a big role in fixing some of the molecular problems that are associated with diabetes. Insulin was first used as a treatment for diabetes in 1922. It was discovered the previous year by a scientist at the University of Toronto. Before this discovery was made, type 1 diabetes, typically diagnosed, diagnosed in young people, couldn't be successfully treated. Before insulin, children with type 1 diabetes were expected to live only about 1.5 years after their diagnosis. In adults, only one in five would be alive 10 years after their diagnosis, and those that did live longer suffered from debilitating symptoms caused by diabetes. Today, it's expected that people with type 1 diabetes will live a normal life. 
I'm sure there are a bunch of people out there right now saying thank you very much. Okay, gene therapy. We're talking about major medical breakthroughs here, folks. Okay. A more recent big breakthrough in the medical field, you don't need to look any further than the gene therapy, which involves introducing genetic material into cells to treat or prevent disease. The very first gene therapy that was launched in 1990, successfully treating a then four-year-old girl with a rare genetic disease that severely affected her immune system. Gene therapy is now used by the NHS to treat certain cases of blindness, and it holds promise for a wide range of other diseases, including heart disease, hemophilia, and cystic fibrosis. Gene therapy is also on the horizon for cancer, with researchers all over the world investigating how to use gene therapy to kill cancer by boosting the immune system making all other treatments work better and to block molecular processes that allow cancer cells to survive. And then last but not least, and I guess this is a, an interesting breakthrough, 3D printing. I still don't quite understand how all this works, but anyway, finally, something that would have seemed futuristic not too long ago, but now presents incredible opportunities for the future, 3D printing. The first 3D printer was developed in the 1980s by Chuck Hull to print solid structures for manufacturing. It wasn't long before the medical world took notice. Today, 3D printing is already being used to create dental implants and prosthetics. But researchers want to take the technology even further and print whole organs. While there is still a long way to go, scientists have already started to print cells and tissues using a process called 3D bioprinting. You don't have to understand it, folks. All you have to do is take advantage of it. This allows scientists to create innovative biomaterials to study in greater detail how the body works. In the future, we expect to see full 3D printed organs that could be used to test new drugs and even eliminate the need for animal testing. Ah, just print me up a new heart if I bothered something like that. Folks, are you getting the sense of this here, folks? It's, there are some amazing things that have happened over the course of history, and they happen more rapidly, less far back you go in history. In the last three, 400 years, the pace of change has been dramatically increasing. Let's see, where should we go from here? Okay, how about this one? That was the medical side of advances in the world and a reason to feel good about the future. How much time do I have, by the way? Just about left. What do you say? About five, six minutes. Okay, great. Thank you. Okay. One, oh, okay. Thank you. Live wire. Tech for Humans, that's where I'm talking about here, folks. This is an article written by Molly McLaughlin in June of 2020, and the title is <clears throat> The 10 Biggest Technological, Technological Advantages Since 1844. So if you were born after 1844, you probably know about a few of these things. <clears throat> okay. On May 24th, 1844, Samuel F.B. Morse sent the first telegraph. What hath God wrought? The phrase taken from the Bible was selected by the daughter of one of Morse's friends. Since then, 
the way we communicate has evolved and leaps and bounds to the point where the device we sometimes use for phone calls can fit in our pocket and has more processing power than the room-sized computers of the 60s. New technologies has connected us in many ways, making it easier to communicate to get around. <clears throat> 1844, 1944, 2022. 180 years, and uh, here we are with smartphones and whatever else you use to communicate. <clears throat> Over the past 175 years, we have seen an array of emerging technologies. Here are 10 of the most significant technological advantages. The telephone, 1876. Just over 30 years after Morse sent the first telegraph, Alexander Graham Bell made the first phone call. His first words were, Mr. Watson, come here. I want to see you. Mr. Watson was his assistant. Essentially, Bell's invention proved the way for making phone calls to people worldwide, not just in the same room. And now, of course, most of us carry smartphones or cell phones every day. <clears throat> the light bulb. Ah, things we take for granted and don't think about or complain when they burn out. <clears throat> 1880. A few years later, Edison let there be light with the incandescent bulb. It's difficult to appreciate what an incredible invention this was until you're dealing with a power outage and your only light source at night is candlelight. We can avoid ever being in the dark with smart light bulbs that you can turn on and off with virtual assistants like Alexa and Google Assistant. TVs, 1927. Before appointment TV, before appointment TV and binge watching, movie theaters were king. They're still the best venue for seeing blockbuster films, but the invention of the television paved the way for home entertainment we now enjoy. The first TV sets were black and white, then came color TVs, and then the ever-convenient remote control. In 1997, Fujitsu released the first plasma TV, a four-inch thick model that you could mount on the wall. Plasma eventually gave way to LCD and OLED technologies, whatever they are. In 2014, LG and Samsung discontinued the production of plasma TVs due to lower demand. Many people watch movies and TV shows on their smartphones, tablets, or laptops, though flat Green TVs are still popular. That's interesting. TVs are getting outmoded now. Computers. First arriving as what we'd consider today to be a pretty rudimentary machines, or even as kits, there were computers in all sense of the words. This is the 1970s we're talking about, folks. Personal computers didn't take off in the personal sense until Apple introduced the Apple II line of computers in 1977. They were sold at stores and included software that expanded what it could do beyond simple programming. The first spreadsheet, VisCalc, was available in, on the Apple II line. The personal computer we all know today exploded when the IBM folks introduced the IBM PC in 1981. Once business 
has adopted it, the entire industry expanded to produce all the products we know and use today. <clears throat> GPS, Global Positioning Satellites. Launched in 1973, the Global Positioning System, GPS, became fully operational in 1995. Originally called NAVSTAR GPS, the U.S. government owns it and the U.S. Air Force operates it. The system can triangulate data and pinpoint your location and it powers the GPS devices and apps that people use now to get around. The precision with which I can find a fishing spot in the middle of the ocean is without compare, folks. I gotta tell you, love this GPS stuff. I'm sure you do too when you're riding around in your car. The internet, all right, 1973, it was called the ARPANET, a precursor to the Internet, and it was created with funding from the United States Department of Defense and the Advanced Research Projects Agency Network. The network shut down in 1990. The World Wide Web became popular in the mid-1990s through services like AOL. It's, pe it's common for people to conflate the two terms. The Internet is a global computer network running standardized communication protocols, while the World Wide Web consists of public sites connected to the Internet. Let me read that again for all you folks over 55 or 60. It's common for people to confuse, conflate such a big word, the two terms. The Internet is a global computer network running standardized communication protocols, while the World Wide Web consists of public sites connected to the Internet. GPS navigation, the 1990s. The government may have uh, launched the global positioning system in the 70s, but they kept it secret for a bunch of reasons, I assume, with national security and safety and being bombed out or something. I'm not sure, but it got in the public's hands in the 1990s. Thanks to the global positioning system, getting lost is becoming more and more rare. Now, most of us use GPSs in the form of digital maps like Google Maps. You could say that Google Maps brought GPS navigation to your desktop and eventually to mobile devices, making planning trips and exploring new cities and localities a breeze. Pretty cool stuff, folks. Navigation software has evolved to include traffic information, transit schedules, and walking and biking directions to get from point A to point B any way that you like. Ah, digital camera. How about a technological innovation here? 1990s, way back in the old days. And now cameras are disappearing. They're turning into phones, I think, for a whole lot of people. Technically, the first digital camera was invented by Kodak in the 1970s. It took a while before technology made its way into the ancestors of the products we use today. Kodak introduced its first professional digital camera in 1991, but it was mounted on a Nikon film camera. By the mid-1990s, digital cameras not based on the body of a film camera were readily available, although the quality wasn't excellent. Digital cameras are everywhere now, from security cameras to smartphones and laptop and desktop computers. Even the least expensive product with a camera embedded in it today is far better than those cameras from early days. Progress, folks. Progress. Web browser, 1994. 
Surfing the web was made more comfortable with the arrival of Mosaic, a web browser that was significantly more intuitive than its predecessors. Compatible with Windows, Mosaic was accessible to the masses, not just tech types, through Netscape Navigator, eventually dethroned. But we can thank Mosaic for giving us modern browsers like Chrome and Firefox, and I might add Safari, as we Apple users might say. And let's see. Aha. I'm not sure if this is an advancement personally, but social media, 2004. Love it or hate it, or both. But Facebook, initially the Facebook, which launched out of Mark Zuckerberg's dorm room, was the first social media platform to gain worldwide popularity. From connecting with the people you want, went to high school, to planning protests against the government, Facebook brings people together. Of course, it also causes all sorts of strife, including hate speech and fake news, which the platform struggles to contain. And last and not least here, the modern smartphone. While smartphones existed in the early 2000s, it took Apple to bring them into the masses. Before Apple launched the iPhone, Nokia owned the cell phone game and even had smartphone-like devices, but the user experience was lacking. And just one year after the iPhone's launch in 2007, Steve Jobs announced the App Store in 2008, which changed the game for good. Soon, millions of people, and now billions thanks to Android and other operating systems, began installing software that extended the capabilities of the computer in their pockets. Think about that, the computer in their pockets. The preceding list is not exhaustive, but includes some of the most significant inventions and innovations of the past 175 years, which affect our daily lives. So what's next? It could be self-driving cars, robot assistants, or something we haven't even thought of yet. Okay, folks, I rest my case. The world is getting better. We've been improving. We have a better life than we've had for a long time. Let's see. About how much time? I'm sorry. I want to be sure about this. Thank you. Okay, so this is one of my favorites, and I'll get this started before the break here. Excuse me. This is an article that showed up in The Motley Fool back in 2014. It was written by a fellow by the name of Morgan Housel, and it's called We're Living Through the Greatest Period in World History. Sound familiar? I pirated that thought for the title of the show. This is a pretty amazing list. I get a little emotional sometimes when I rip through this list here, but I'm going to start doing that now, and it'll take us into the next hour of the show here quite easily. I have a couple more lists of some pretty wonderful things that have happened in life here, folks. I recently talked to a doctor who retired after a 30-year career. I asked him how much medicine had changed during the three decades he practiced. Oh, tremendously, he said. He listed off a dozen examples. Deaths from heart disease and strokes are way down. Cancer survival weights are way up. We're better off at diagnosing, treating, preventing, and curing diseases than ever before. <clears throat> Consider this. In 1900, 1% of American women giving birth died in labor. Today, the five-year mortality rate for local breast cancer is 1.2%. Being pregnant 100 years ago was almost as dangerous as having breast cancer today. 
The problem, the doctor said, is that these advances happen slowly over time. And this is the key, folks. The problem, the doctor said, is that these advances happen slowly over time, so you probably don't hear about them. If cancer survival rates improve, say, 1% per year, any, any given year's progress looks low, but over three decades, extraordinary progress is made. Yes, a headline in the news that says cancer survival rates improve 1% probably would be on page 19 or page 27 or something like that. Okay, got about a minute. I'll do a couple more things here. Let's see. Compare health care improvements with the stuff that gets talked about in the news. NBC anchor Andrea Mitchell interrupted a congresswoman once last week to announce Justin Bieber's arrest. And you can understand why Americans aren't optimistic about the country's direction. We ignore the really important news because it happens slowly, but we obsess over trivial news because it happens all along. Okay, folks, we're going to take a break, and i got some really good news when you get back. (laughs) 